All right. Good morning. How is everybody? There we are. Hey, how about our worship team, our video crew, all this stuff? Let me tell you something. Uh, Ever since we've had to adapt to this pandemic and do it online and in here, things have got increasingly complicated. And so I'm grateful for an amazing team that can help troubleshoot and also still provide a meaningful worship service. And so thank you for all those that have already contributed to leading today. Uh, It is, what, four weeks now, I think, that we opened our campus to allow folks in here and to be a part of this. We still have folks joining us online, which is great, and and we want to continue to to do that in meaningful ways and important ways. And you heard uh, Jason mention a little bit about that earlier, and I just want to reiterate some of our approach. At this point, we're going to keep doing things the way we've been doing them. When we first started this discussion, we thought, well, maybe we'll add services and, and other components, but to be honest... As you've seen, the complexity of just doing one and and online is is a lot. But at the same time, there hasn't really been a strong need or demand for additional services at this point. But I do want to clarify, because I have had this question on a couple of occasions, that when we started uh, to open up our facilities again on Sunday morning, we, we joined with the state guidelines by saying, if you are in the vulnerable demographic, if you're 65 and above or previous health conditions, then we would encourage you to stay home. Uh, That was what the state was saying. We joined in that. But I want to make sure everyone knows it's not like we're policing the door or the registration process. Uh, Through these last four weeks, we've had several folks who have fallen in that demographic who have joined us here on Sunday morning. And so if you are at home and that's you and you're thinking, I'd love to be back in church, we've ultimately put the decision in your hands. We're going to create a safe environment no matter who you are, no matter what demographic you're in, so that if you should decide to come, you can. And we just want to make sure that you know that. The main point of emphasis for us at this point in the journey is the gathering of the saints, right? Uh, We're grateful for technology, and we're grateful for the ways in which we can still continue uh, to be together, but there's just something about being in person. So through discipleship groups, uh, through the, the Sunday morning experience, our, our point of emphasis is, is just gather. Uh, however you can, gather with people in a safe way, in an appropriate way, so we can continue to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And so we can celebrate fun days like today. Happy Father's Day. For all those that are here that are fathers or not fathers, I hope to be fathers, uh, it's, a, it's a great day to celebrate, and it's one that we want to acknowledge and honor you. Uh, I will start by quoting the great Dave Barry. Uh, if you're sitting at home thinking about a gift that you might want to give your dad or, or a loved one or something along those lines, Dave Barry said it well. What dad really wants today is a nap, all right? Really, that's probably all that he, he might really want and need. Now, we as a church can't really do that for you. We can't give you a nap, but we can give you another gift. And you heard Matt mention it uh, earlier. You may not have heard it if you were online, that on Mother's Day, we... Uh, partnered with Dwell Coffee Shops and and purchased a a gift card so that we could bless the ladies with a free drink and a free biscuit sandwich or something along those lines on Mother's Day. And so dads, you get the same thing. You're in luck. And so uh, we sent out an email to all the men in our congregation this morning. If you didn't get it, notify us. You can email Sarah at ubcfortworth.org. She has all the details that you will need so that you can enjoy that gift. And we hope that that tells you that you are loved, you are valued, and we appreciate you. Uh, but we know that uh, the greater gift is, is not even really just a drink of coffee or a breakfast sandwich, but for us to encourage one another through the Spirit of God. And so what we want to do is we want to pray for our fathers this morning, for the men in our lives. Uh, we want to pray for our time together as we prepare to open his word. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and prepare to receive all that he has for us this morning. 
Father in heaven, we love you and we are grateful for the rain. We're grateful for the storms. We're grateful for a chance to just gather and sing. We're grateful for uh, the way that you love us, Father, that we can come to you and, and not sense some distant deity, but to truly call you Father. We're grateful for the earthly pictures that we have in our lives, Father, of, of people that play that same role, that love us as dads and, and are just important influencers in our life. We pray for those that perhaps have had broken and hard relationships with their earthly fathers, that you would heal them, that you would comfort them today and once again prove yourself to be faithful. For those of us that have benefited from uh, great pictures of what it means to be a father and have have had positive influences in our lives, Father, for that we are grateful. But for all of us, God, wherever we are on the spectrum, we ultimately bring prayers of adoration and gratitude to you today because we know that we have you and we are your children. And as we prepare to give greater thought and consideration to what that means for us today to be your children, we pray that your word would illuminate our hearts, our souls, and our minds as we seek to honor you. Be with us now, Father. Give us your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. All right, so I don't know about you, but one of the side effects of the pandemic in the Smith household has been a long list of home improvements. Am I alone in that? Anybody else just working on their house all the time? Uh, it started in our bed, thank you, Matt. It started in our bedroom. We got rid of bookshelves. We updated James's closet. We changed the craft room and then the upper playroom area. We've done work in the backyard. We've done work in the living room where now we're hoping to put some built-ins in on either side of the fireplace. Like no room is safe at this point. Like we're just constantly doing improvements. And I think part of it is because we're home all the time. And what used to be those little, little nagging lists that would pile up, ah, I want to do that someday. Oh, we need to do this. Now you're just there and you're just like, today's the day. We're going to get this done. And so we've had a long list of things and we're constantly in that home improvement mode, which I think is part of why over the last few weeks we've, we've kind of rediscovered our love for the show Fixer Upper. Uh, anybody else here a fan of Fixer Upper? Can I get an amen? Right? There you go. Uh, everybody's still used to like the Zoom calls. Y'all are like, no, 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 you're like, you're on mute. You can, you can interact and respond. But we, uh, we watched the Fixer Upper all the time, and I introduced it to my kids recently in the last few weeks, and they loved it. I mean, just fell in love with the whole concept of the show, so much so that one night they, they snuck out of bed and kind of hid in a room that Jennifer and I couldn't quite see, just so they could see the end of this one particular episode, which makes sense because it is the end of the episode that kind of brings this climactic moment of transformation where you see the change in the house. And it's, it's kind of everybody's favorite part of that episode where they get behind that big picture of what the house used to be like. And then they say, all right, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you ready to see your fixer-upper? And you can see the couple, they're like, oh, I just can't wait. And they get all excited. And then boom, the massive, you know what? Rather than me talk about it, let's just watch a couple of clips of it. Just, just a few highlights to fixer-upper today so we can relive how fun this part of the show is. Brooke and Charlie, you two ready to check out your fixer-upper? We're yeah, ready. We are ready. We are ready. Oh my goodness! <laughs> wow! Oh my <laughs> It is gorgeous. Okay, McCall's, are you ready to see your fixer upper? Yeah! Oh my goodness! <laughs> 
Andy, are y'all ready to see your fixer upper? Absolutely. Yeah. All right, here we go. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah! So pretty. <laughs> it's beautiful! Oh my gosh! I love it! This is like beyond gorgeous. Climatic part of every episode, and I love it. My favorite part is when they show you what the house once was, and then it's like this heavenly glow just like comes across it, and whoosh, there's this massive transformation. And I think part of what makes it so captivating is it is this invitation that draws us into this drastic contrast. The, the reason these families and these couples are so uh, joyful and so excited is because they know what that house used to be. Right, they, they walked around it, they saw all the flaws, they saw all the messes, all, all the difficulties <clears throat> that it was gonna take to make it somewhat livable, and then they see this massive transformation. So it's this contrast between the then and the now, what was and what is, what, what you were and what you are now, and that creates this joyful response. And I wanted to give us a tangible picture of just how exciting that transformation is because that's the gospel. Right? That's what the whole gospel is about, is this, this story of transformation that brings you into, here's what you were, but now here's who you are. This is what was, this is what is, this is the before, this is the after. This is the whole power of contrast that Paul has been trying to utilize through the story of Ephesians. Right? This is the old self, but now here's the new self. You were in death, now you are in life. And the imagery that we're going to get today as we continue through this passage is light in darkness. And it is going to hopefully for each of us give us one more opportunity to respond with that same sort of joyful praise for the transformation that God creates in all of us. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and let's take a look at how Paul uses this imagery and the power of contrast to awaken our hearts to the gospel. Here's what I want to do though. Since last week we had our panel discussion, it's been two weeks since we really have been in Ephesians and where you really see the contrast is by reading the paragraph that precedes our focal uh, point of scripture today. So we're gonna actually pick up in verse three. We've already talked about verses three through seven, but I wanna reread them just so that we can feel the weight of the contrast. And then today's message is gonna focus in on verses eight through 14. So picking up in chapter five, verse three. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Here's our text today. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. <clears throat> okay, it's such a great text, and, and you see that imagery and that contrast between darkness and light. You see the here's what you were, 
but now you're this. And I love that progression. I love that contrast. And we've seen the imagery of darkness and light before in this letter. In chapter 4, uh, darkness was emblematic of ignorance. In chapter 1, I think light was referring to uh, truth and righteousness. And so we've seen these terms before, but I really want to make sure we, we understand what they mean now that they're being used with such close contrast with one another. So, so when you hear the word darkness, part of what is being conveyed here is, is evil, right? That there is this, this realm that exists. In, in some ways, it's even this belief of the abode of evil spirits, the realm of evil spirits, the realm of sin. And that's an important concept for us to keep in mind because when we get to chapter six, we're gonna talk about how we resist and even combat against this realm in this present darkness through our own armor that we put on, right? So, so Paul is gonna to continue to use this imagery. And so darkness obviously speaks to evil. Light is a very positive thing. From, from a philosophical standpoint in the Greco-Roman world, when you had light, there is this understanding that light helped uh, you to see, and as an extension, you were able to grasp the world around you. And with that understanding, with that visibility, you found freedom. You, you understood how to live. You understood how to, how to engage and how to act. And so light was something to be praised. It was something to be celebrated. So you have two very different concepts that are now put side by side. Now, what is very important here, though, as we see how Paul is presenting it to us, is that this is more than him just saying, here are some realms in which you might live. Right? There's a realm of darkness. There's a realm of light. And so where do you reside? This is really about identity. Right? He's not saying you, you used to live in darkness. He's saying you were darkness. But now you are light. So this is about the very core of who we are. This is about our identity. And the reason Paul is making that as a point of emphasis is because our identity is going to dictate our behavior. Right? The more we understand who we are, the more capacity we're going to have to actually behave and conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received, as he's already articulated. So he's trying to drive home this concept of identity. And so to, so to bring that idea of identity greater to the surface, here's the, the phrase that he gives us. He says, live as children of light. That's such a powerful statement. Okay, this, this ties into the whole theme with the second half of this letter, right? That word live, peripateo, means to walk, to, to behave, to conduct yourself in a manner. This is what started that shift in the second half of the letter, chapter four. Live your life in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. And time and time again, we've seen this verb, live this way, live this way. And so now he's just reiterating it, live as children of light. And so he uses the imagery of a child. And, and I think that's a, a powerful reminder for us on a day like Father's Day, because there's something to be said when we understand our identity as children. And, and so there's some nuances to this that I want to uh, kind of speak to this morning to make sure that we have in mind. And, and the first is, it's just when we think about the relationship of children to fathers. Um, I, I recognize that for many of us, that can be a difficult connection to make because we have a lot of different experiences with our earthly fathers. Uh, some people fall on the end of a spectrum where those experiences with your earthly father have not been positive, right? Maybe that's an experience where there's been heartache, where there's been pain, where there's been abuse, where there's been neglect, and, and, and it's an estranged relationship. 
Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum where the relationship with your father has been nothing but positive. You, you have this hero that you look up to, this, this role model, this, this support protector, this just, just incredible person that you're so grateful as a part of your life. Here's the point. Regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, your relationship to your earthly father pales in comparison to what you have with your heavenly father, right? And so no matter where you are, you have a father who loves you. And so we must never lose sight of that. But in addition to that, part of what I think we can all acknowledge, regardless of our relationship with our earthly fathers, is that we have this understanding that we can't help but in some ways begin to emulate our parents, right? Even if we don't want to, be it just because of the mannerisms that we use or even the genetics and the way we look, you just you can't help but resemble who you belong to. And so Paul is driving that common approach and that common understanding and say, you belong to God. You are children of God. Act accordingly. Right? Jesus is the light of the world. He has told you, let your light shine. So live as children of light. This is your identity. So if that's the thrust of this paragraph, the question we must ask ourselves this morning is, what does that look like? What does it look like to live as children of light? And that's where we get at least three different things that Paul is going to bring to the surface through these next few sentences and these next few verses. Okay, so we, we see a discussion on the fruit that light produces in our life. We see a, a statement on how we need to find out what pleases the Lord, understanding God's will. And then we have a statement about how we expose the fruitless deeds of darkness. So those are the three things I want us to kind of walk through and navigate through this morning as we follow along with what Paul has just offered us. And so let's start with fruit. Okay, the, what he is saying is that when you live as, as children of light, there is going to be evidence of that in your life. You're going to bear certain fruit. And the fruit of the light is, is what? Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, it's almost a, a parenthetical statement that he kind of makes uh, as he's going through this progression. Don't forget what kind of fruit you should produce as living as a child of light. Uh, you should have goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, we've We've talked about these terms before. They've shown up before in this letter, so I don't need to elaborate too much on them, but let me just review very quickly what they mean. Goodness is speaking to moral excellence, right, with, with kind of a, a hint of generosity, right? So previously, we, we've seen it translated as useful, so use your hands for that which is useful to meet other people's needs. Speak in a way that is useful for other people's needs. It's, it's goodness, Right? So the goodness that you have, this, this morality that you pursue is also not just good for you, but good for the neighbor. It's that whole uh, uh, emphasis on loving the neighbor as well, which you also see with righteousness. Right? So this is to do what is right, to do what is just, but it's not just what is right for you, and it's not just what is right in relationship to God. It's right in what's relationship to God and humanity. Again, it's God and the neighbor. And then you have truth. Right? Truth is a, is a critical term throughout the entire scriptures. You, you have this understanding of honesty, of integrity, of loyalty, but, but the emphasis continues to be that it, truth is not just something that it's said, it's something that is done as well. Right? So it's, it's behavior, it's conduct. So, so all these things are tying together, and I, and I think in some ways what you can see, and the reason I wanted to read some of the preceding verses, is it kind of counterbalances the three vices that we saw in the previous paragraph that kind of dominated the previous paragraph, right? Which were sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. And so now Paul's kind of coming back and say, rather than those things, what should be evident in your life is goodness, righteousness, and truth. 
Okay, so there's this counterbalance there. But we also see that these terms, this fruit, is so general, right? It's such a broad description that in many ways, as, as one scholar I was reading explained it, it's almost like Paul's just kind of describing the whole Christian life, right? This is kind of what it means to be a Christ follower, right? These things should be evident in your life. And so if that's the fruit of light and we are children of light, then we have to ask ourselves, do we see evidence of that in our own lives? And, and it's kind of hard when you have general descriptions to figure out whether or not you can see those things. So sometimes you have to drive into some, some deeper specifics when you do that sort of introspection. So when you think about goodness, right, and you think about moral excellence, especially a, a morality that helps benefit others, you, you need to kind of ask yourself, is that evident in your life? Am I truly pursuing moral excellence, not moral perfection? Because for that, we're all gonna fall short. But moral excellence, right? Am I, am I desiring, or am I still struggling with, with these glimpses and these, habits of immorality, right? The, these things that I keep rationalizing and I just, I'm just accepting at this point. Things that I, I'm doing, whether it's uh, the way it's destroying my relationships with others or minimizing my relationships with others or things I'm still doing in secret, the way I talk, some of the actions I engage in, some of the indulgences that I pursue. Is immorality still an issue? Or am I striving towards moral excellence? That, that's the fruit of light, that's goodness. You think about righteousness, right? And is that something that you strive for, right? And again, it's not just a right relationship between you and the Lord, it's a right relationship with humanity. So when we see injustices, when we see acts of unrighteousness, are we there to take a stand for what is right? Are we standing up for the marginalized and the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, and anyone who might be experiencing any form of oppression? Right? Is that evident in your life? That's what children of light do. Truth. Are there things in your life you're still trying to conceal and hide? Things that you want to keep done in secret? Or is your life more open, more honest, more transparent? Right? We have all these different things that we can really begin to ask ourselves to really try to evaluate if this fruit is really being produced as we seek to follow Christ. Right? And so that's part of what we see in this this contrast of light and darkness and our identity as belonging to the light is that it should bear fruit. Now, one of the other things that it should lead us to is this desire to find out what pleases the Lord. I love that phrase, right? Find out what pleases the Lord. In some ways, it kind of continues to carry this childlike innocence to me. I think it builds off that, that picture of being children. When, when I read a phrase like that, I can't help but think of my youngest son, uh, Wu, because he's three, and he's still just figuring out everything. You know what I mean? And, and I don't know the last time you've hung out with a three-year-old, but they do all the stuff that they shouldn't do. You know I mean? They're just into everything. And so there's like sharing, hitting, you know, standing up at the, at the breakfast table. Like all of it is just whatever. And so anytime we correct him, I love the, the picture on his face because he genuinely wants to please Jennifer and me. Like he really wants to. And so we'll say something like, Woo, sit down in your chair. Like, sit on your bottom. You can't stand up at the table. And he gets this look like, huh? What? Huh? Huh? Sit? And we're like, yeah. And he goes, oh. And then he sits down, and he's like so excited to please us. And, and it's just that childlike innocence of, I want to please mom and dad. And that's the sort of posture that we should have in our own relationships. Like a constant desire. What, what pleases God? Now, that phrase 
find out what pleases the Lord, I think is really powerful. And I, and I want to dive deeper into it uh, this morning by breaking it down. So you have to have that mentality, that childlike innocence that makes you desire it. But then we need to understand it. So, so the word find out uh, literally means to test or, or to examine. It, it can be used in certain connotations like the testing of metal, you know, to see its durability and all these things. So you actually have to try it out. And, and I think that's important, right? Before we get to the second part of the stays, statement, let's just understand the importance of actually trying out the will of God, testing it, actually doing it. Because I think what happens is a lot of times we miss out on just how fulfilling the will of God can be because we're not willing to test it. And, and I see how often that can happen, that the fear of trying something new can prevent you from truly experiencing something great. I, I had a recent interaction with my daughter, Annabelle, who has this kind of, I guess, a personality that's somewhat like me, that once you find what you like, I'm just going to keep doing this. You know, I'm going to order the same thing off the menu. I, I know what it's good. I don't need to venture out there. And so we end up in these sorts of conversations. And a couple of weeks ago, we ended up in one on the difference between uh, yellow lemonade and pink lemonade. You guys ever thought about this? Like what the difference is? You ever explored that? It's more than just the color. I don't know if you realize that. But so we were talking about this randomly in our front yard. And Annabelle definitively and defiantly says, I don't like pink lemonade. Now, whenever my daughter makes a statement like that, because I know her personality, uh, I know that I need to ask a follow-up question. So I was like, really? You ever had pink lemonade? To which, to her credit, she owned up to it and said, well, no, you know, I haven't, but I know I don't want it. I like yellow lemonade. And I was like, well, you should try it. No, I don't want to try it. Just unwilling to even try it. So I came up with the idea of a lemonade taste test. So a couple weeks later, got the blindfolds out, had the ingredients. We had the yellow lemonade in one glass, the pink lemonade in the other had her try both of them, and then she had to choose which one she liked. And so after this, this taste test, sure enough, after she sat there and she thought about it, and with bated breath, the whole family's gathered around, she picks pink lemonade, okay? Now, she was so shocked. She made me conduct this test four more times, and every single time she chose pink lemonade. And so it was great. I was just like, see, there you go, because she finally tried it. And I think that's what happens to us. Right, so, so again, it could happen on a lot of different ends of the spectrum where we sit there and maybe when it comes to matters of faith or religion, we're just resistant, right? We're skeptical of any of it. And so we're, we're gonna go ahead and criticize it and, and leave it aside. We're not even gonna try it because of our skepticism. Or, man, we grew up in church and we're comfortable and we know the language and we know the answers. <clears throat> we know what God would say <clears throat> we know how God would teach us. <clears throat> we know all these different things. We know what, what he might be leading us to do, but then there's this fear, there's this trepidation. Why? Because what we know is comfortable. And so I know God might be asking me to go do this and do that, but that requires change. I don't want to do it. So we don't even try it. And we keep living the same life, and we miss out on something that if we would just taste it, we would choose every single time. Test it. Find out what pleases the Lord. And it's that second part of the statement that to me I think really brings some significant weight, right? Because that's a hard thing to do when you start talking about the will of God. What Paul is, I think, really after here is he's teaching us every circumstance that you face, every situation that you encounter, you have an opportunity to seek out God's will and to live accordingly. 
You know how to make those decisions. And, and while we all can acknowledge that that's pretty difficult to do, I think Paul has given us a pretty good uh, metric to use in those scenarios and in those situations. Here's the question you ask yourself. What pleases the Lord? You're in a situation, you don't know what to do at work, you don't know what to do with a friendship, you don't know what to do in certain scenarios. Ask yourself that question. What would please the Lord? Find out somebody's been talking about you behind your back and you're a victim of gossip and you feel that rage, you feel that anger, you feel that frustration, you want to confront, you want to tell them off, but then stop and ask yourself, but wait, what would please the Lord? You have problems in your marriage. You find out you've been lied to. You find out that you've been cheated on. You find out that you're the victim of all these different egregious acts and you want to find vengeance. You want to find equitability. You want to get revenge, all these different things, but then stop and ask yourself, what would please the Lord? You've been diagnosed with a terminal illness and it feels like God isn't fair. It feels like he's unjust. It feels like that this, he's distant, he's uncaring, and so you want to turn your back you want to go your own way, stop and ask yourself, what would please the Lord? Every scenario, every situation, that's, that's what we do. We test it. We seek it out. And we answer that question, what would please God in this scenario? I want to give you a very powerful example of this that I came across uh, a week or two ago. Because I think this is so important. Uh, I started reading this book called The Sun Does Shine by Anthony Ray Hinton. I don't know if you've heard it before. I've, I've mentioned it actually as a resource in our discussion on, on racism and social or racial uh, reconciliation. And so it's, it's listed on our website as a resource. But Jennifer had read it. She recommended it. I started reading it a couple of weeks ago. It's a very powerful book. I'm only three chapters in, but just in those first three chapters, I was kind of swept away by it. Because the premise of the story, it's a true story, is this, this young man who was wrongly uh, convicted and thrown in prison for crimes he didn't commit, murders that he did not commit. And so he ended up spending 30 years on death row in solitary confinement in the Alabama prison system before he was released. So he was finally released 30 years after, 30 years sitting on death row, right? And so I, I was so moved by this story because in the opening chapter, he takes us back to his trial, and, and I, I realize that this is an extreme example, right? That, that Lord willing, most of us are not going to find ourselves faced with death row and, and wrongful imprisonment. But, but I want you to join me for a moment and just imagine what this would be like. like just, just try to put yourself in this scenario. Imagine working in your backyard, mowing the grass, when all of a sudden the police come up and arrest you and you have no idea why. Out of the blue, they apprehend you. And then you start to, to hear what the charges are, that it's murder, not just one murder, but multiple murders. And imagine the fear that that would create in you, the concern and the angst. And so naturally you begin to offer a defense, you offer an explanation, you, you give... Uh, actually what is a very solid, incredible alibi, right? You, you have all these things to substantiate that you had no part of it, and you see that the evidence that they're using is not accurate, it's, it's, it's not true, and all of a sudden you are feeling that you are going to be led away in a direction that is not fair. And so you long for your defense, but you have to wait two years, two years in prison before you even get a chance to defend yourself. 
And while you hope that there's some way that somebody will fight for you, the one attorney that's been assigned to you because you don't have enough money, imagine that attorney looking at you and essentially saying that what he's gonna earn from this trial and representing you is so minimal in his mind that you know you're gonna get minimal effort. And so two years finally passes. Imagine sitting in that courtroom and seeing all these lies being spoken about you. Literally, you know that they're lies because the moment before somebody testified, they told you in a separate conversation before entering the courtroom that they don't care if you did it or not. Because even if you didn't, one of your brothers probably did. Imagine that. Imagine being surrounded with that level of discrimination and prejudice as a prosecutor says all these things about you and looks at you with a certain look as if you don't even deserve to live. And finally you get your moment to speak on your behalf, to testify and to give a defense. What would you say? How would you feel? What would please the Lord? Listen to what Anthony Ray Hinton had to say. This is an excerpt from his book of his testimony at that trial. Here's the prayer he prayed before he testified. He said, dear God, let them know the truth of things. Let them see into my mind and my heart and find the truth. Bless the judge, bless the DA, bless the victim's families who are in pain. Dear God, let there be justice, real justice. And here's what he said. He said, I've been praying to God for the DA, for this judge, and especially for the victims. You gotta give an account for what you've done. It doesn't matter to me because if I can recall, Jesus was prosecuted, accused falsely for things he didn't do. And all he did was try to love and save this world and he died and suffered. So if I have to die for something I didn't do, so be it. My life is not in this judge's hands. My life is not in your hands, but it's in God's hands. Now, I don't wanna be electrocuted, but whatever the way the Lord has me go, I'm ready to go. You know, I looked and I've seen prejudice in this courtroom you people don't want the truth. You don't want the right person. All you wanted was a conviction. Mr. McGregor, the prosecutor, Mr. McGregor, I don't hate you. But for a slight moment during the trial, I was beginning to hate you, I really was. But I thank God that it came to me that I can't make it into heaven hating nobody. I love you. You might think I'm crazy for telling a man that I love him that's done prosecuted me and is trying to send me to the death chair, but I love you. It might sound crazy, but I got joy even with leg irons on me. The joy I got, the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away, and that's a fact. Your Honor, I thank you for letting me have my say. Mr. McGregor, I'm praying for you real hard. Ever since I've seen you, you've been constantly in my prayers and I'm gonna continue to pray for you. Wherever they send me, God can hear my prayers. Now what would really make me worried is if you could isolate me from God, but you can't do that. You took me from my family, but you can't take me from God. Now the saddest thing of all this is that you're ready to close the case. Judge is glad it's over, the families are going home thinking the man's been brought to trial. The police say the case is closed, but God hasn't closed this case. He ain't about to close it. He's going to reopen it. Might be a year from now, might be tomorrow, might be today, but he's gonna open it. I'm not worried about that death chair. You can sentence me to it, but you can't take my life. It don't belong to you. My soul, you can't touch it. What pleases the Lord. See, that right there is an example 
of bearing fruit of light. That's an example of goodness, of righteousness, of truth. Choosing love rather than hate, grace and forgiveness rather than vengeance. And what happens when we live that way, when we're willing to actually do what pleases the Lord in even the most difficult moments, is the next part of what Paul brings to our attention. It exposes the fruitless deeds of darkness. See, even though it took 30 years for him to be vindicated in the eyes of the law, in that moment, by him carrying himself in such an honorable way, he exposed the fruitless deeds of darkness. So when we begin to to bear the fruit of light, when we begin to truly test and see what pleases the Lord, we can't help but expose the fruitless deeds of darkness that exist in society and the world around us. And so when we think about that, a couple of things to keep in mind. The deeds of darkness are indeed fruitless, right? That means they're unproductive, they're useless, there's no point, there's no reason to engage them. They're going to sound comfortable, they're going to sound alluring, but at the end of the day, they are incredibly unfulfilling. They leave you empty more than anything else. And so Paul's saying, don't partner with them, don't even have nothing to do with it. Now, one of the things I want to clarify is he's saying have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness, not have nothing to do with the doers of darkness, right? You still love people, right? Part of what we begin to see in this progression is that when we live in such a way, it leads to exposing the darkness for what it is. It can no longer hide. That's why this imagery of light and darkness is so powerful. To expose means to refute, to rebuke, to to shine a light on what is at fault. And that's exactly what light does. It illuminates the darkness. And part of what's so powerful about the way that Paul describes it is it's not just that it penetrates the darkness and illuminates it, it actually can transform it into becoming light itself. And so when you see these descriptions of light living in darkness, there's no excuse for us to kind of walking away with any sort of conclusion that says, well, then as a believer, I just need to isolate myself and protect myself from this darkened world around it. No, we're the ones that step out and we illuminate the darkness for what it is and we have the capacity then to actually transform the darkness. Now, part of how we do that is being very intentional because he says some of the things that, that the disobedient do, we can't even mention. Right, so Paul's likely referring to some of the sexual immorality that exist, existed in during that time period that would be shameful to even discuss. But the point that I would make for us this morning is that what Paul is saying is that words are not enough. Sometimes we do need to speak out and call out what is unjust. But what's really going to expose darkness for what it is, is our behavior, not just our words. Right? So it's not enough just to get up and put a rant on social media. It's not enough just to offer lip service to something. How you live is going to be what exposes darkness for what it is. When we embody love, when we embody grace and forgiveness and justice and righteousness, that's what begins to expose the darkness. And that's what begins to model for others. That's a life of transformation that I so desire. So my question for you this morning is very simple. Do you believe it? Do you believe it about yourself? That when people look in on your life and your conduct because of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, you can illuminate the darkened world around you. People can look in on you and be inspired at the transformation of who you were and who you are now. Do you believe it about your marriage? Do you believe it about your friendships? Do you believe it about this church? 
right? That, that people can look in on us and see this light radiating this darkened world and be so inspired that they would want to join in the chorus. Right? Part of the reason that Paul ends this passage with this, this quote is because he's reminding us of what Christ has done for each and every one of us through the cross, right? He has this, this reference, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And what most scholars believe is it looks like he's quoting scripture, but what he's really probably doing, since it's not an Old Testament text, is what he's really probably doing is referring to a, a hymn that was frequently sung during a baptism. They kind of refer to it as a baptismal hymn. And, and that's this moment that, that we talk about, this moment of, of transformation where we truly celebrate the who's who we were, here's now who we are in that joyful praise and that joyful adoration because we know that Jesus Christ has changed everything. His light has shined in our heart. He has called us his children. We are to bear his light. And so we need to never forget that as we begin to live accordingly. And so where are you this morning, church? What I would encourage you is to wake up and rise from the dead and let Christ shine on you and through you, right? If you come into this world, if you come into this room, if you come into this day and you've got anything in your life that has been tearing you down and making you weary, making you skeptical, making you concerned, then remember the joy and the power of Jesus Christ and rise up. Rise up with goodness, Rise up with righteousness, rise up with truth, rise up with a passion to do anything it takes to find out what pleases the Lord. Rise up as children of light, because that's exactly who we are. We are his children. So let's stand together and live accordingly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you, and we are grateful beyond grateful, Father, to be known as your children. So, Father, may that identity pierce our hearts, our souls, and our minds today in such a manner that it compels us to live accordingly. Father, let us bear the fruit of being your children. Let that be evident in our life. Let us have a passion and a desire to seek out what pleases you in each and every circumstance. Father, help us to expose the darkness for what it is, but, Father, in a manner that brings transformation and change and adoration towards you. Father, we pray that you would awake us all, that we would rise up with strength and power and that the light of Christ would shine on us and through us. To you be the glory both now and forever. Amen and amen.